This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. And to listen to all parts of today's interview, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You'll receive your login immediately and we'll have access to all of our material commercial-free. And to get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. Anthony Peake is a writer who deals with borderline areas of human consciousness. He's a graduate of the University of Warwick and the London School of Economics. His first book, Is There Life After Death?, was published in 2006, and since then he has gone on to develop his own ideas, together with exploring the latest areas of research in his field. His fourth book, Making Sense of Near-Death Experiences, is a a collaborative effort with some of the world's leading authorities on the near-death phenomenon. His seventh book, A Life of Philip K. Dick, The Man Who Remembered the Future, will be the focus of tonight's interview. And to learn more about Anthony Peake and his work, visit his website at anthonypeake.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Crawley, West Sussex, England, I'm privileged to welcome my new special guest, Anthony Peake. Hello, Anthony, and welcome to Veritas. 
Hi, Mel, and thanks you very much for introducing me and a uh, wonderful introduction, and it's great to be on your show. Really looking forward to the next two hours. We're going to get into some very interesting areas, I think. Indeed, and I'm, I'm so privileged. Uh, I, I have to say, sometimes I have guests like you that I have not been exposed to, and I feel somewhat embarrassed, and I always say the same thing. Why have I not been exposed to your work? Because for the past 10 minutes, you and I have been talking, and it feels like uh, you're a, a lost uh, lost brother or friend that I haven't met, but it seems that I know you for some reason. Well, there is the old statement, isn't there, that uh, the world is just full of friends we haven't met yet. And clearly from our just our chatting in the last 10 minutes, it's amazing. The the areas of overlap in terms of our musical tastes and everything else is indeed, indeed amazing. So maybe we can touch upon that later. But yes, no, I feel the same way. Good. Well, we can talk about all your work, but tonight we're going to be focusing on a very special man, that's Philip K. Dick. And right from the beginning, so that people understand, we're going to be using the, the, the letters PKD to refer to Philip K. Dick. First of all, for the audience, the very test audience, I know you've been in many other shows and they know you, but for our audience, there may be some people who may not be exposed to your work. Give us some of your background and what made you question the nature of consciousness. Uh, there's a lot of people that haven't heard of me. I mean, there's an awful lot of people in the world out there, so it's not surprising. And there will be uh, your your listeners who will be introduced to my work for the first time. And I hope they find it intriguing and interesting. Um, my background very much is um, very standard uh, person brought up in the UK in the late 1950s, early 1960s, went to university in 1973 um, and studied sociology, studied history and then did postgrad at London School of Economics uh, in, in business. But effectively, I've always been fascinated by the relationship between whatever is in my head with the external world. And ever since I was a very, very young child, I used to be intrigued by the fact of, of dreaming and the way in which I can live within this three-dimensional reality, perceive the three-dimensional reality around me. And yet when I go to sleep at night, I exist in another reality, which to me is just as real and indeed must be just as real because Unlike people who lucid dream, um, I'm not somebody who, when I'm dreaming, can suddenly realize the fact that I'm dreaming and become aware of, of dreaming and therefore become conscious within a dream. So to me, the whole question of what it is to be a conscious something, you know, in other words, there's a conscious something that is existing a few centimeters behind your eyes that's looking out to a universe that is completely alien to it. In other words, one of the things that fascinated me for many years is the interface we have with external reality. In other words, everything I perceive is actually transmitted to my brain by sensations, by sens sensual sensations, such as the sense of touch and the sense of hearing and sight and everything else. But I never actually fully interface with the external reality I perceive. And I, even as a child, I was intrigued to know whether that reality I perceived was the reality that other people perceived. And funnily enough, just making a comment here about Philip K. Dick, because one of the things that PKD wrote about um, many times was when he was very young, he had similar interests in the sense that he once quoted the fact that when he was working for a record store uh, uh, in um, his hometown, he he turned round to the fellow engineers and he said, how do you know when we come across a, a red traffic light as to whether we are all perceiving the same red? 
Because, of course, as I used to think as a child and as a teenager, effectively what I perceive as red isn't necessarily what you perceive as red. And indeed, there is no visual or verbal way I can describe what red looks like to you to make you understand that the red I see is the red that you see. Because all I can say is that red is a little bit like a dark version of orange. But that's defining it by relative terms. So when I, as I developed, um, I, I was interested in people and groups. And that's why when I was at university, I decided to actually study sociology, which of course is the study of people en masse, you know, how human beings work collectively. But I never moved away from the idea that human beings, um, uh, sort of society is effectively a collection of individual human beings. And each human being is an island. And each human being perceives the world in a different way. So when I began to study in greater depth philosophy and the philosophy of some of the idealists, people like Berkeley, people like um, uh, Fechte and various other German writers particularly, it became clear to me that the whole idea of what consciousness is in the greater world was something that had intrigued philosophers for millennia. In fact, you can go back to the writings of Plato, you know, where Plato had his famous analogy of the cave, the idea that, you know, we could all be spending our time as prisoners in a cave looking at shadows on the wall and assuming the shadows on the wall that we're seeing are actually reality, when in point of fact, the reality is beyond the fire, beyond the shadows and beyond, beyond the entrance of the cave. And indeed, touching back on Philip K. Dick, again, Philip K. Dick was fascinated by this idea, the idea of what exactly is reality and how do we know what reality is. Now, I was in the fortunate position of um, around about 12 years ago, having a little bit of a cushion financially in that, uh, that I'd done a couple of business contracts because my background, I mean, I, I work as a management and a business consultant, um, but I I'd, um, had sufficient cash. To, to follow my dream. And my dream was to write a book. And it was quite strange because I just had this driving urge to write a book, but I didn't know what I was going to write about. You know, it was really quite strange. There was just this give time up. And my wife said, okay, you can take a year out. So just settle down and just write a book. And I, what happened was the very first day that I was writing the book, I was literally sitting in front of a blank computer screen. I had the white paper of a, a Word document in front of me, not knowing where I was going to go. And I recall this quite, quite distinctly because I can remember it quite precisely. And I was, at that time, we were living in a place called Horsham in West Sussex, which is around about 15 miles away from where we now live. And I was looking out the window thinking, what am I going to write about? And the most strange sensation took place in that I started feeling a tingling in the, 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 the edge at the bottom of my fingers, the end of my fingers. And I started to feel a tingling in my lips. Now, I have for all my life suffered or experienced, for want of a better term, classic migraine. And I knew perfectly well that what was happening here was it was the, the aura effect of a classic migraine attack. Now, an aura, an aura feeling is a sensation you have before you have a migraine. And in classic migraine, you know that in 10 or 15 minutes, your head's going to explode and you're going to have incredible pain. It's the kind of early warning system. But what was strange about this particular early warning system was that I started to feel very, very peculiar. And 
I suddenly had the overwhelming sensation that I had sat in front of that computer, looking at that computer screen some time in my past. And it was the most powerful deja vu sensation. You can imagine, I'd done that before. I had been there before. The aura then developed, and strangely enough, the, the, the actual headache then never developed. But I had my theme. I decided I wanted to write a book explaining exactly what deja vu was. And effectively, a year later, I had a book, which uh, at that time was called Cheating the Ferryman, which was about my search for the understanding of the most common, strange sensation 70% of people out there will experience at some stage in their life, that feeling that they have been somewhere before. And in fact, the book is The Life After Death, The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, which was the final book that was published in 2006, very much explains or attempts to explain exactly what that sensation is and why it is we recognize the fact when we go to places that we recognize we've been there before. And from then, the other books then spun off because all the books have been additions to and elaborations on that initial concept, which I call Cheating the Ferryman. Uh, and indeed, even the Philip K. Dick book is an elaboration on this, because in my second book, The Daemon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, I have a whole section, the last chapter, it deals with Philip K. Dick. And all I wanted to do was then actually expand upon Philip K. Dick, because I believe that Philip K. Dick experienced every single thing that I write about in my first book and my subsequent books. He was a living example and proof of the power of the hypothesis that I call cheating the ferryman. And of course, we're going to be discussing PKD very soon, but, uh, you know, thinking of that cheating the ferryman reminds me of Don't Pay the Ferryman by Chris de Berg. But also oh. speaking of uh, Plato and the story of the cave, the problem is that those of us who want to explore what's outside the cave are always looked upon as dysfunctional. I'm seeing some similarities here. I went to graduate school for business, and, and we're dealing with this, dare we say, alternative reality in a way because we're trying to explore what school didn't teach us. Do you find that sometimes you're living in two different worlds or dimensions? Completely and utterly. I think you're the first interviewer that's really hit that nail on the head and I think possibly because of the similarity of our business backgrounds. But effectively what you find is that the vast majority of people do not, they question. People do question and they question many, many things, but they don't question the questions behind the questions. Uh, in other words, you know, you, you, you know I, I, I've developed a fairly effective working knowledge of, of quantum physics uh, because I've had to over the years of my writing. And people ask certain questions about the nature of reality and physics asks questions about the nature of reality. But when you start asking questions, the really big questions of, for instance, why is there something other than nothing? Why is it that um, the most effective organism in terms of reacting to its environment was an amoeba? Why is it that we have evolved from amoebas? Because amoebas were profoundly effective. The question of why consciousness and self-referential consciousness has evolved when effective or altruism when effectively, if we take the classic idea of, of nature uh, roar in tooth and claw, the idea that altruistic behavior and curing behavior and supporting behavior of your fellow human beings is not necessarily conducive to the survival of the fittest. 
one can argue that one could say that it's because um well i don't know that you're 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 making the the, the your whole race survive but surely the imperatives is to ensure that your own dna survives so these are the questions that i've always asked and whenever you get talking to i would call the general public about these things you can see their eyes glazing over because these are not the things they want to think about because what they're doing is they're facing the really deep questions those questions just as you go to bed at night when you're sleeping when you're about to go to sleep and you start to think about exactly what am i and you look into yourself to find the i inside and you discover there isn't anything all we are we are a, a reaction to external stimuli and we react in certain ways we never ever look inside to find out who the person is that's doing the perceiving of the reality around us nor indeed do people think of what i was touching upon earlier on the idea of how we perceive reality there is a term that um um uh, students of consciousness studies called naive realism and naive realism is what most people believe and naive realism is that the world that is presented to you by your senses is an absolute total facsimile and copy of what is really out there now all people who understand the process of perception even materialist reductionists that actually break the word, the brain down into its processes and its biochemical processes and its bioneurological and its neurochemical processes agree that whatever we are being presented to within our mind of what is external reality is not what it's like the question is what is it really like and indeed the even bigger question is is there a little version of me in my head that's in other words there's this whole idea isn't there of um the idea of the little man in the head in other words you are a little man or a little woman sitting in your head in a little room with two big computer big speakers and a big tv camera in front a tv image in front of you and you perceive the world that way it's called the the uh, the the idea of the homunculus the little man inside the head but of course that's an infinite regress because effectively it suggests if that's the case it means the homunculus itself must have a little man sitting it's in in its head so we start to get the mystery then of trying to really appreciate what is real and what is not real and most people never think about it fortunately there are more and more people asking these questions now and i don't know whether it's because there's a there's a seed change going on but humanity seems to be splitting into two groups that the groups that really just want their reality television they want the the stimuli that just keeps them from birth to death in a state of semi hypnotism because that's what they want they want more more money they want more possessions and there are individuals like ourselves who are actually in the really big asking the really big questions and saying you know what's the point of the universe the universe is vast you know 13 billion light years across 14 billion light years across why what is the point of it is there a point or is it literally we are just links in a genetic chain we're just um tools for our dna to continue these are really huge questions so funny enough i used to do a radio program on the bbc over here in the uk bbc radio merseyside and the guy who used to do the show with me 
once turned around to me live on radio and said, I don't understand you. I don't know how you sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> and I sleep at night very well because to me, these are, it's an abdication of your own intelligence and it's an abdication of being human to just not ask these questions. This is what you're here to do. You're here to ask the questions. And if you don't ask the questions, I argue you'll just go around again. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, I'm just thinking sometimes I go to a store and I, I have the conflict of getting this or getting that, almost as if I had two different males in my brain that conflict with each other. And I sometimes wonder, could it be that our right hemisphere mm. is there with the answers and we just cannot access them so easily? And it's almost there as a filter to keep us, to keep our brain only focused on what it deems important. I think that's a very good point. And again, clearly because you're, you're only just being introduced to my work in my book, The Dame and a Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, that's exactly what I suggest. And I suggest that human personality, uh, human consciousness is actually bicameral. Um, and I very much am affected by the writings of people like Julian Jaynes on this and some of the split brain operations of people like Michael Gazaniga um, and, uh, my, and, uh, and Sperry, Roger Sperry. And it's very, very intriguing because I know that the new age, for want of a better term, have actually ran, run with this idea of, of the two sides of the brain, the dominant and non-dominant hemisphere and the left and right brain. It's far more complex than that. But there is strong, strong evidence that there are two areas of intelligence within the brain. Uh, and again, touching upon Philip K. Dick, this, this is very much what Phil touched upon. You know, if you read his, his book, A Scanner Darkly, in A Scanner Darkly, you actually, you know, the, the, you, you have certain characters that are, that are acting in a, in a way that there's actually two minds working around, you know, and what you need to understand is that Phil believed that he was two individuals as well. You know, he very much touched upon this idea. And again, uh, just jumping ahead slightly, Phil wrote something called his exegesis, which was this many, many million word um, analysis that he privately wrote every night for years, trying to understand certain events that happened to him in 1974. But in this, he touches upon this whole idea of the two parts of the personality. Uh, and this is very much what I write about in, in The Damon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self. And in fact, what I do is I suggest that there is an everyday personality that lives in the world. You know, the idea of design, the idea of German philosophy, um, the idea that there is you are in the world, but there's part of you that's outside of the world. And the part of you that exists within the world, I call the Eidolon. And the Eidolon is your everyday personality that lives your life linearly. It lives in time and it lives within linear time. However, there's an, also an element of you called the daemon. And the daemon is what ordinary people would call your higher self. There's lots of other terms that have been used throughout history. But effectively, it's the idea that there is part of you that is immortal. There is part of you that exists outside of this illusionary reality, this, this program that we live within, this, this, um, this black iron prison. Um, this, what, I think it was, yeah, it was Phil that called it the Black Iron Prison. And it was what William Blake called the Mind Forged Manacles. And it's this kind of illusory reality. 
Now, all of this is very much based upon uh, the philosophical ideals and beliefs of the Gnostics, because, again, the term Eidolon and, Nos and uh, Daemon are very much Gnostic terms. And it's the idea the Eidolon is, I use the analogy of, imagine life is a computer program. There are two elements to the computer. There's the computer program and the computer game, and there is the person playing the game. The Eidolon is the, the, it's the sprite on the screen. You know, you play, you play Tomb Raider. Lara Croft is on the screen. Lara Croft is an Eidolon. Lara Croft lives her life. If the Lara Croft sprite on the screen was self-conscious, she would be aware of the fact that she runs down corridors and she gets so far and she gets killed. Like an avatar. An avatar, exactly. The avatar that's on the screen. The daemon is the game player. The daemon is the game player who has played the game before. Just like when you play a computer game, so Lara gets killed on the screen, goes back to the you as the game player goes back to the start Lara starts to run down the corridors again but this time you know that if she goes into that room there'll be a big monster that will eat her so you don't go into that room now I'm saying to you now and to your listeners you will this will resonate with many people have you ever had that sensation in your life where something deep within you is saying to you don't do this this feeling a powerful sensation of not doing this that's your daemon talking to you that's your game player telling you as a um an eidolon to not do something the eidolon wants gratification the eidolon wants all the things of living within the world whereas the daemon is aware of the fact that you that you are part of a continuum of many many lives and the daemon guides you through the lives. And again, if we want to go into the technical background to this, I'm quite happy to, depending upon time, because I argue that the near-death experience is all tied up with this. And unlike lots of other writers in these subjects, I do the neurochemistry. I do the science. Everything I'm saying to you now is rooted in science. It's rooted in either known scientific discoveries or scientific theories or hypotheses based upon the observed behavior of subatomic particles and the behavior of the brain and the way in which certain neurochemicals in the brain can make you change your mood, your feelings, your ideas and everything else. So here we have this kind of duality. Now again, moving back to Phil, Phil, Phil called this element within him, he called it AI, artificial intelligence, or later on, he called it Valis, vast, um, the, the Valis, the, the vast active living intelligence system, because he believed he was being controlled by something. But again, we can touch upon this later. Um, but effectively, no, we are dual beings. We are all dual beings. And we all probably, if we think about it, we know we are. And I think that the, the not the Gnostics, the, the no Gnostics, say that consciousness or, or memories are simply the sum of all parts, the, the sum of our experiences. But there's something beyond that, isn't it? Oh, totally. I mean, the idea that it's, it's very phenomenally naive of people to turn around and say, oh, okay, yes, we are, we are just made of our memories. The question I always ask when you, we, start, we start this game of mirrors and looking back and looking back is let's start talking about memory as a concept. Memory as a concept has been a, a phenomenal mystery for psychologists and, and neurologists for decades. 
The reason being, they can't find it. They don't know where memory is located in the brain. They know where memory is probably processed within the brain, which is probably in the temporal lobes, but they don't actually know where memory is 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 stored. Now, for instance, there was um, a guy called um, Carl Lashley. And in the 1950s and 1960s, Carl Lashley spent most of his career trying to discover memories in the brain, something called the, the en en Enneagram, the, where, the brain, where the memories are. And he did some very, very, I would say, sort of morally questionable experiments with rats. And what he would do is he'd teach a rat how to go through a maze. Then he would cut sections of the rat's brain out. And then he would teach another rat. And effectively, whatever part of the brain he cut out of the rat, the rat still managed to find its way around the maze. Now, one of his students was a guy called Carl Pribram. And Carl Pribram taught at the University of Georgetown. And Pribram came to the solution of where memory may live or exist or may be. And he argued that memory is stored holographically all over the brain. In other words, you will never actually find the location of memory within the brain because it's stored everywhere and it's stored in a non-local way. And again, it's a, there's a term from quantum physics here, non-locality, which again, I'd explain in my books in detail. But effectively, if memory is holographic, one of the, 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 the fascinating things about a hologram is that if you take a holographic image and you, you break it apart, it's not like a normal picture. If you have a normal picture and you break it apart, like, like, I don't know, you have a jigsaw puzzle and you take it apart, each part of the jigsaw puzzle shows a small part of the overall image. This is not happen what happens with a hologram. With a hologram, if you break it, what you will actually end up with is a denuded image of the whole. And this is really quite intriguing. It means that every part of the hologram contains the whole. Now, this again is intriguing stuff. And again, I'm name dropping here, but if anybody's interested in taking this forward and looking into this in greater detail, there's a, uh, an Anglo-American particle physicist by the name of um, um, David Bohm. And David Bohm wrote a book called Wholeness and the Implicate Order. Now, David Bohm knew Einstein, he worked with Oppenheimer, he was one of the world's leading particle physicists. And he came to the conclusion that reality, the brain, everything that we perceive is a hologram. The brain is a hologram processing an external hologram. In other words, everything we perceive is pure information. It's digital. And this is why Pribram uh, Lashley could never find memory because memory is everywhere. Now I'm doing work at the moment with um, Professor Irvin Laszlo, and in fact Irvin and I have just finished the writing of a book that we're writing together. Um, Irvin Laszlo is, is a phenomenally well-respected academic. He's been nominated for the Nobel Prize twice, I think, possibly three times. And Irvin and I are both in agreement about this idea of the holographic nature of reality and the digital nature of reality. And what we both argue is that um, the, the way we perceive reality, we're making huge errors here. We're missing the obvious. The obvious is that reality is a computer program. 
It's a program in the same way as I used the analogy before. We exist within a computer program that is rendered as we look at it. It is rendered as we perceive it. And again, if you want to look at the work of people like Tom Campbell, um, there's again a lot of scientists who are coming along this route of saying there's so much clues now. We're being given to the fact that this is a simulation. Now, just very much, I'll just point for a second as to why it is logical to conclude that this is a simulation. Humanity, the moment the way computing is developing, we have Moore's law, which is saying that our computing powers are, are doubling every three years, okay, whatever it is. This means effectively that at some time in the future, we are going to continue advancing with this idea of artificial reality, artificial simulations. We already do it now. We have our computer games that we're actually developing that are becoming more and more immersive. We, as you cited before, the term avatar, the movie avatar very much gave the idea of how you can immerse yourself in a three-dimensional world. Now, if this is the case, and the computing power continues, it is logical to conclude that one of three things will happen to humanity. We will either wipe ourselves out in a nuclear war within the next 50 to 100 years. We will decide to not pursue the, science, the, the discoveries we're making in terms of digital computing, which is very weird for humanity because humanity has never ever done that in the past. If there's some idea we've got, we will pursue it. Or the third option is we will continue pursuing developing virtual reality. Okay? That's the logical conclusion if we don't nuke ourselves. If we do that, within three or four hundred years, and in my, my book, The uh, Infinite Mindfield, which came out last year, I suggested that if we apply Moore's Law, the computing power will be available to us to simulate a whole universe within probably 300 years. They've already simulated a very small part of reality. And I cite the actual example of this in the book, The Experiments They've Done. Do you think that we, we might become cyborgs or, or let's say human 1.0, which is what we are now, and then we have humans 2.0? And those who do not elect to be part of the human 2.0 would probably be eradicated and the new race of cyborgs will be more controllable. Well, no, I think it gets more complex than that. I mean, that's a possibility. But I think, can I just continue with the, the train sure. of thought and then we can come back to it? So, we then, there's the computer simulation. So, our future generations, 300 years in the future, can generate and can, can digitally recreate everything that's gone before in a digital format, in a computer program. That computer program would contain you and me. It would contain all our experiences that we have had in our lives. In which case, statistically, it is more likely that we are existing in a computer simulation than we're not. Now, again, if anybody's interested in pursuing what I'm saying here, it's not an Anthony Peake original. There's a guy called Nick Bostrom that very much wrote a paper a few years ago, very much suggesting this idea that we're a simulation. Now, on top of that, there was a book called The Physics of Immortality that was written by one of the world's leading particle physicists, whose name has just escaped me, but it will come to me later. And in The Physics of Reality, he actually suggests and extrapolates from this 
to assume that everything we perceive is a computer simulation. And therefore, we effectively within the computer simulation are immortal. So we are all avatars within our own computer game. The question then is, who are the computer programmers? Is it our own friends in the distant future? In which case, if that is the case, suddenly we start to explain an awful lot of anomalous phenomena that we see. For instance, um, the very the, the, when people turn around and say they see UFOs, and UFOs seem to sort of appear and disappear within, you know, they just don't fly away. They just kind of disappear from this reality. Now, if the UFOs are actually part of the program, or they are people from outside of the program coming into the program, suddenly it starts to make sense. And a lot of this makes sense because it is a powerful explanator of the human condition. It's who are the programmers and what is happening. And this is, this is where I'm taking my work at the moment. Uh, and again, Phil, to his credit, towards the end of his life, Philip K. Dick wrote a short story that was never published called The Owl in Daylight. And in The Owl in Daylight, he has a central character who is a person living within a computer program. And he's living within the program and his own daughter, who's outside the program, is trying to guide him through the program. Now, I'd argue that's the daemon. Again, the daemon is the part of you that's outside of the program, the part of you that's outside of the matrix. You know, if we go down to the Wachowski brothers and the idea of the matrix, which was profoundly Philip K. Dickian in its influence, the guys that are on the spaceship are the people outside of the program going into the program to actually let us know what is taking place. Now, going back to uh, PKD, Philip K. Dick, why is this so important to you? Oh, wow. Where do I even start with that? Um, Philip K. Dick um, is, is simply the most intriguing speculative fiction writer in history. Um, Ursula Le Guin, one of his friends, uh, once said that he is our own homegrown, homegrown Jorge Borges. And Jorge Borges was um, an, a blind Argentinian magical realistic writer. Um, and Borges used to write these incredible mas- mystical, strange short stories. And Phil does the same, but he does it within the genre of science fiction. Now, for instance, if you go right back to to Phil's early years of writing in um, the early 1950s, even from then on, Phil was writing science fiction stories that really made you think. You know, the, the writers around at that time, they were writing space operas. They were writing about alien civilizations, alien invasions. Phil was writing even at that time stories about what it is to be human, what it is to be conscious, what it is to understand your relationship with reality. For instance, you know, he, he, he wrote a most amazing st- story such as The Adjustment Team, which was made into a movie recently called The Adjustment Bureau. Okay. Now, The Adjustment Team was written in 1953. And in this he has a situation that the reality that the central characters are living within are being manipulated. 
things are changing within the reality to make them realize that what it is, is every time a decision is made by somebody, an adjustment team comes into the program to make sure that the outcomes of that change is programmed into the program. Now, this was in the early 1950s. He was he was thinking then about the idea of what the Gnostics believed in. Gnostics believed, and, and Phil very much was a Gnostic, the idea that the reality we live within is an illusion. It's what the Hindus call, Hindus call Maya. It's the illusion of the reality. And we are trapped within this illusion. And according to the Gnostics, the illusion that we live within has been created by a false god, something called the, the Demiurge, Yaldabaoth. Okay, now this is going back, we're talking now about 2nd and 3rd century AD philosophy. And indeed, it is self-evident that the, the Gnostic philosophy at that time was drawn upon from probably the pre-Socratics and the, the early Greek philosophers. So this is a very deep idea that comes back from deep in history. Now, if we argue that civilizations are cyclical, there's easy reasons to believe that these belief systems came from an earlier civilization of humanity or from somewhere else. So the Gnostics believed that reality was an illusion. Phil very much took those ideas to heart, and he believed that we were trapped within this illusion of reality. And all his stories right from the start had this idea of this, but he also had another great theme, and his theme was what it is to be human, empathy. He has a short story called Second Variety, where people are developing more and more sophisticated weapons in this war. And what they do is they develop sentient, self-referential thinking bombs. And these bombs go in to the enemy pretending to be human. And then like a suicide bomber, they explode. There is later on, I think it was in 1968, he wrote a short story called The, um, the, the, um, the Electric Ant. And in this, it's really creepy. It's a guy who realizes that he's a robot, that he is, he's made of metal. He opens up his own chest. And in his chest, he sees this kind of reel-to-reel -reel tape. And he moves the reel-to-reel -reel tape. And as he does so, his reality speeds up. And he realizes this tape in his chest is, is reality modulated. It's the recording of his life that's being processed and given to his mind. So then he decides to cut sections out of this tape. And when he does so, he actually ends up changing his reality. Now, again, if somebody wants to read this story, and I strongly advise this, if the, the concept of the electric ant really intrigues you, get hold. Marvel Comics did a version of this in 2010. They did a comic book version of it called The Electric Ant, which was written, was, was drawn and painted by a guy called David Mack, who was somebody I was in contact with in the research for my Philip K. Dick book. Have a look at this, because this comic really gives the idea of just how powerful Phil's ideas were. But all his stories, all his novels, they all deal with profoundly important concepts. Now, on top of that, I believe that Phil 
was not only writing from his heart, he was writing from experience. One of the things he's particularly fascinated in is recognition. And again, if anybody's seen the movie uh, Minority Report, which sure. is based upon Phil's short story, Minority Report, you'll recall that there are these creatures that, or these, these human beings, these kind of ossified human beings who can see the future. And there is a pre-crime group, and their job is to arrest people before they commit a crime. But this whole idea of precognition goes right through his books. The term precog occurs again and again and again in his books. And I believe this is because Phil himself was a precog. He knew about precognition because he perceived precognitions in his life. And indeed, that's why the subtitle of my my biography of Philip K. Dirk is called The Man Who Remembered the Future. And I'm thinking of others like, uh, say, Jules Verne, who wrote in the 1800s, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, all these people. Where do you think they get the idea? It's just uh, Jules Verne, for example, he depicted rockets, he depicted, he, he explained distance between the moon and the earth and planets almost correctly. Where do you think they tap into, uh, what's their source? I think, I think there are two things we have to take into account here. The first one is that somebody like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and various other science fiction writers, although they were science fiction writers, they weren't writing in total isolation. So in other words, they were aware of the scientific developments that, they, they, that, that, that were happening around them. Now, for instance, the idea, you know, Jules Verne's concepts of uh, traveling to the moon and everything else and using a rocket, I mean, people were aware of um of the new laws of newtonian physics so therefore they did realize that in order to travel at a certain speed you would have to have something that would have uh, a reaction an equal reaction so rockets weren't that strange so what he was doing is he was extrapolating from the science he knew to the how he thought the science would be so hg wells did the same now i'm not saying that 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 to me is not necessarily precognition but what it is is a brilliant ability to actually take the information you have and make it into a great science fiction story. And I think that's what great science fiction writers have always done. You know, they take modern science and they just play around with it and say, what ifs? There are certain other writers, though, that seem to have abilities that are far more precognitive. Um, I'm reminded of um, a story that was written, I think, in the early years. I think it was called Futility. Now, this shows how bizarre my memory is, because I don't know where the hell I've pulled that from, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> and it was called Futility, and it was written, and I cannot at the moment, but I will if I let my blind mind go blank, remember the name of the guy who wrote it. Futility is a story about a transatlantic ship that was considered to be unsinkable. In the story, the writer gives the tonnage of the ship, it gives the number of funnels, it gives the number of passengers. This ship sails, and on its maiden voyage near Greenland, it's sunk by an iceberg. Of course, we know in 1912, was it 1912, 1913, April 1912, I think it was, the, um, the Titanic is sunk under almost the same circumstances. I'm reminded another classic example of precognitive writing is a short story that was written, I think, by Edgar Allan Poe about a group of men who are shipwrecked, are whalers, and they are shipwrecked, or their, their ship is destroyed by a whale, and they're set up in, in the sea off New England. 
and they end up eating the cabin boy. And the cabin boy's name, and I can't remember what the cabin boy's name was, but a few years later, that incident took place, and the cabin boy was the same name, and he was eaten by the crew. Now, in my book, Is There Life After Death? Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, I explain how that can happen. And I explain how that can happen because it's future memory. In other words, both Edgar Allan Poe and the writer of Futility, in their future memories, would have encountered that news. In other words, do you understand what I'm saying now? So sure. in their future, they would have encountered that news. And their future self, their daemon, backfeeds to their past self the plot. And they write it. And this is how I believe certain writers, for instance, give you a classic example of this. And this stuns me. Uh, and in my book, um, The Labyrinth of Time, which deals with time anomalies and everything else, I go into detail about this. The British writer Rudyard Kipling uh, wrote a series of small short stories for children called Pook of Pook's Corner. And these stories were, were stories from British history. And one of the stories he writes is a story um, called The Old Men of Pevensey. And in it, it was based in about, oh, about 60, uh, 1088, something like that, soon after the Norman invasions. And there's, a, there's two elderly gentlemen living in a tower in Pevensey Castle in Kent. And no, it must have been 1066, 1067, I guess. And the Norman invasions take place. Now, Pevensey Castle is quite near where the Battle of Hastings took place, which didn't take place in Hastings, by the way. Um, and the, in the storyline, he has the two old men surrounded by the Norman troops and they have a treasure. And they have to get the treasure out of the castle. I've recently visited um, the house that um, Rudyard Kipling wrote this story. Uh, it's in West Sussex near where I live. Bateman's, it's called. And he used to wander around the garden thinking up stories. And he started writing this story and he got trapped. He trapped the characters in the top of the castle, in the, the tower, and couldn't get them out. Now, most writers will know that this will happen sometimes. You write a story, you don't know where you're going to go with it, and you end up stuck. This is what Kipling did. And Kipling was wandering around the gardens of Bateman's, and Kipling claimed, in, and if you read his book, Something of Me, which was his autobiography, he claims that there was a voice in his head that told him his stories. He called this voice, get this, his daemon, okay? He, the daemon comes to him and says, you can get the men out of the castle. Make out there is a sea well, a well, a well in, behind one of the walls. Have the men find the sea well, climb down, get into a little boat and get out. Kipling actually in the book says he said to his daemon, that's ridiculous. There isn't one there. I know I've been there. It said, it said, well, write it anyway. So he writes it. 20 years later, there are excavations done on Pevensey Castle in the tower that Kipling described. Guess what? They found the, they found the sea well. It, was, it had been bricked in. They knocked the wall down and they found it. Kipling in Something of Me describes his discovery of that. 
The older Kipling's Damon is Kipling himself with future knowledge feeding his younger self storylines. That's the power of this cheating the ferryman hypothesis and the idea that we live our lives many, many times. This is what Philip K. Dick did all through his life. He had, he claimed, and he, I, I read all of his letters in research of the book, and time and time again in his letters, he said, I cannot believe the things I'm discovering now are the things I wrote about in my stories in the 1950s and 1960s. He said, it's as if there's part of me that lives outside of time. He actually had a term for this. He called it orthogonal time. And there's part of me that lives outside of time and feeds me the storylines. An example, um, in one of his stories, um, he has, I think it's in, probably is a scanner darkly, I think. He writes about a character, and he wrote this in 1972. 71, 72. He has a character called Kathy. Now, is it that one? I'm trying to remember whether that's the right story. It could be Flow My Tears, but I think it's a scanner darkly. But he has a character called Kathy. And Kathy, um, in the story, has a boyfriend who is an undercover, an undercover cop. Okay. And the undercover cop was a trench coat and there's one part in um there's one part in the book where phil and Ka the character the central character phil's central character and the girl kathy go into a bar and they see the undercover cop and she turns around and she says i've been lying to you i've been having a relationship with an undercover cop he's in here we can't go into the bar and he writes that in the story a few years later phil is out with a girl he knows called kathy and they go into a bar and Kathy grabs hold of his hand and says, we can't go into this bar. My boyfriend's an undercover cop and he's over there. And it Incredible. was the scene that Phil had written in his book a few years before. Now, that's the power of this kind of back memory and how it works and how it functions. And I think there are writers who can just put together the information to write very, very effective science fiction or future novels. And there are the writers who actually know they're actually seeing the future. Now, as a really odd aside, and this is something that I've mentioned a few times, I don't accept it, but it is odd. I've been told that Philip K. Dick predicted me. Okay. I read that. Please explain that. Okay. I did a talk um, uh, around about eight or nine years ago at Bolton Library in the northwest of England. And Bolton Library is this beautiful library. It's a theatre. It's like if they have a theatre in the back of the library. And I was doing a talk on uh, my book, The Damon, I think it was. And I had quite a large audience at the time. And, and as, as I was going through it, at the end of my presentation, I have a presentation on Philip K. Dick at that time. And at that time, I didn't realise that I'd be writing a biography of him. But effectively, he, he intrigued me. And on the, the PowerPoint presentation, and again, I'm quite happy to send the presentation to you to actually put this up on your site if you want. I put the presentation up and I had a picture of Philip K. Dick. And one side I had a, a book cover of his book, Ubik, and the other side his book, Vallis. As I did this, there were a group of people in the audience, in, in the whole part of the audience, started getting really agitated and wandering around chatting to each other and whispering. 
which I thought was really quite ill-mannered of them. And I thought, what's, what's pro- what does their problem? Yeah. After I finished talking, they came down to me and they were in a state of shock. And, and one of them said, and he said to me, you're not going to believe what's just happened. And I said, why? And he said, well, the only reason we are here today is that two days ago, I came into the library to pick up a book I had ordered a few weeks ago. And they phoned me up day before yesterday to say the book was in. And he takes it out of his, his suitcase. And it's the literal book that I'd put up on the screen, the, the, the version of Ubik. Okay. And he said, look, it's the same cover. It's the same edition. And he said, and we deal with my little group here. We're interested in synchronicities. And that's when he turned around to me and he said, and you know, Philip K. Dick predicted you, don't you? And I said, no. And he said, have you read all of his stories? And I said, no, no, I haven't. And he said, you need to read his book called Counter Clock World. And I thought, okay, right. And he said he wrote this in 1966 it was published in 1967 and i said so what's the principle of counterclock world and he said well it's a really interesting concept because in it time is running backwards so people literally are dug out of a grave as an old person and they get younger and younger and younger until they disappear up their mother's mother's womb okay there's something there's something happening where time is running backwards but there's one there's one person that everybody is waiting to be reborn because this person um is as somebody who's come across who has come across ideas and philosophies about what happens to human consciousness at the point of death okay so he's somebody that's interested in near death experiences and everything else now the guy turned around to me mick mick holder his name is if he's listening in hi mick he turned around and he said, now, Phil had any name in the world he could have chosen. He could have chosen any name whatsoever. And I said, yes, yes. And he said, guess what he called this character? And I said, what? He goes, Anarch Peak. <laughs> wow. And, and then he said, think about this for a second, Tony. If Phil had been precognitive and he saw your name written. And if his precognitions were, as I've now discovered, he had precognitions in his hypnagogic state when he was in semi-waking, semi-sleeping state, either hypnagogic or hypnopompic, depending whether it was in the morning or not, you would see images and you'd lose them. You know, if anybody has hypnagogic imagery, they'll know what I mean. You see things and they fade and you can't control them. So he said, imagine he saw your name go floating past and he saw A-N-P-E-A-K, Anthony Peake. So he saw the first two letters and the first four letters of your surname. And it got in his mind and he thought, Anthony Peake, Anarch Peak. He couldn't quite get the name right. Now, what is odd about this is that I've now written a book on Philip K. Dick with the name Philip K. Dick on the top and my name underneath. Okay. Now, Phil, when Phil had what was called his theophany in February, March of 1973, when he had this huge, some people call it a breakdown, other people call it the opening of his third eye, the opening of his pineal gland, his perceptions, everything changed, which we can go into later. He claimed that one of the things he was shown in his 
hypnagogic sequences were book covers, hundreds of book covers and paintings, but you saw book covers. Now, just imagine for a second that one of those book covers that he saw in this hypnagogic dream was my book about him. And he saw his name, Philip K. Dick, and saw the name Anne Peake, and it flashed by. Very intriguing. Do I believe that? No, I don't. But I do believe in synchronicities. And I think that is a very, very peculiar synchronicity. And I do too. I do believe in synchronicities. And this seems to be a, a very clear one. And we have to take our one and only intermission very soon. But this nature of time, the retrograde, the fact that he was convinced of, of, at one point that information not only flowed from the past to the future, but also from the future into the past. And yes, you discussed that book. Uh, uh, I forgot the, the actual name, but when life starts from the grave, just imagine how life would be if you started backwards. You would see life differently. But before we take the break, I want to ask you another question. Why did he say that we were still ruled by the Romans? And he repeated that many times. Yeah, what happened when he had his uh, 2374 experiences, uh, he claimed that what he what he had experienced this uh, was something called anamnesis, which is the loss of the loss of forgetting. It's a platonic term. And what he believed is that the world effectively stopped in, um, and I think he fluctuated on the dates, but I think I'll, I'll zoom in around about 70 AD, the time of the fall of the, the, the temple um, during the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Jewish revolution against the Roman occupation of, um, of Judea and Palestine. And he claimed that he was given information that effectively told him that time stopped in 70 AD and that ever since then we've been living in this computer simulation this illusion this matrix for people who've seen the matrix movie and time stopped and not only that but he believed that he was a member of a a terrorist group um a jewish group or a schismatic christian group that were fighting against the roman empire uh, and this is why he used the term many, many times, the empire never ended. And it's a term that comes across many, many times in his writing. And his idea was that time stopped. And he said time stopped because of the nature of time. And we'll touch in the second half on exactly Phil's argument of the nature of time. But he considered that time, there are two types of time. There's linear time that runs linearly from the future into the present, into the past. Then there's orthogonal time, which is effectively at right angles from everyday time. And every second of our lives has an orthogonal time that runs off it. And effectively, all you need to do is to get out of the linear time into the orthogonal time. And suddenly you see all time as one singularity. Like a square that has the lines going up and then you have to think of Correct. time also going to the right. And, you know, I want to ask him when we come back also, was he bipolar? Was he, did, was he autistic or did he have probably a milder version, perhaps Asperger's? All of this when we come back. Please tell the audience this is such a fascinating book and I, I really can't wait to start delving into your past work in the future. Tell us how to uh, get in touch with your work by, by your books and so on. Right, okay. In terms of my books, you can order my books at any bookshop worldwide. Um, some some bookshops actually do stock them as well. Um, obviously, the larger ones, it's more likely. If you want to pick up my books on Amazon, they're on Amazon, um, on Amazon, all Amazon sites. All the books are also in Kindle. 
um, and available on Kindle for download at very reasonable prices. Also, if anybody is interested in buying a personalized copy or a signed copy, you really do help me out because although my publishers are brilliant, effectively being typical publishers, by the time they've taken their cut and everybody else has taken the cut, I end up with very little. Um, effectively, if you go onto my website, anthonypeak.com, that's Anthony with an H and Peak, P-E-A-K-E, dot com, you can order the books directly off my website, signed copies and copies I'll put whatever you want to be written in them. Um, which is at normal price, but of course the problem of the pricing will be the uh, the shipping costs. But effectively, if you go onto my website, you'll find a page and you can actually buy them on PayPal. And again, that does help me a great deal. But my books are out there. You can find them in most places. And of course, there's lots of them secondhand now as well. And they're in libraries. So you can always go into your library and read it for free. And on Tuesday, the 2nd of March, 1982, Philip K. Dick's life support system was switched off. And so the world... With the flick of a switch, lost one of its most enigmatic, talented, complex, and ultimately fascinating writers. But we have Anthony Peake here, who continues to take the torch somewhat, and has written a biography of this great science fiction author. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. We have so much more when we come back. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest... Go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Cock your weapon cause the devil's in heaven will special relativity drop. You crack a smile at Jeremy Kyle and get your bull in a china sweatshop. Such a big pretty boy over the internet. But your mouth ain't made you man of the hour Did they replace your spine With the length of Linton to unwire it up To a Monsanto cauliflower Are you gonna wake up? Are you gonna wake up? You gonna wake up? Wake up this morning
it's all good religious fun But you'll drop your weapon in hell Cause change won't come through the barrel of a gun Are you gonna wake up? This is Anthony Peake, and you're listening to Veritas.